0: Hello and welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Danielle Hernandez.
1: I'm Steve Adelman and we have a special friend with us. Hello, Janet I'm... Janet
0: Celery. Janet Celery coming to you from
2: Stratford, Ontario. Yay, Janet.
0: Who's the head of ESA Canada is on the pod. <laughs> All right. So, so today, well, I'm just going to start with a story because storytelling is what we do um this past weekend we had some high winds forecast in fact our local meteorologist put out on social media if you're doing anything this weekend like a festival or at bouncy houses or tents you really need to make sure that those are secured down because we're going to have some 49 per mile per hour wind gusts uh which is different than our normal gusty winds that would happen in the springtime so really make sure and
1: i have a big wind for south carolina is that's that a right?
0: big wind for south carolina Uh, especially when we're not uh, in thunderstorm season and we're not in uh, the edges of a hurricane sort of weather. And I will say the the time of day that the wind came through, it was beautiful outside. It was warm, it was sunny, but it was extremely windy. To give you an idea how serious this is, uh, a worker at the Biltmore Estates in Asheville, North Carolina, actually lost their life to a tree limb coming down during those same winds that went through the area so it it was not a warning just you know to make people chatter it was It was a legitimate cause for concern and uh, at my work this weekend, we had some tents set up as additional dressing room space um, so one of the things we started to do was we started to do a whole bunch of risk assessment as to what those tents could withstand and what they were supposed to be used for and uh, where they were placed and the fact that they had walls and blah, blah, blah. Uh, we talked to the manufacturer, et cetera, but we ended up deciding not to let anybody use them during the time of winds. And they were inspected before we put them back into use on Sunday. So it was a very successful, very successful experience all the way around, but it does sort of take us back to this conversation about how we assess risks, where, what, what tools do we use, um, I like to put risk assessment in the category of what could go wrong and what can we do about it, (laughs) which sounds very short to say, it could get very lengthy in in how you figure that out. And Steve and I had had a conversation, we'd had to talk about the different tools that we use to help, I guess, because there's so many things and so many different ways to look at them and so many people's opinions that we use some tools to help us categorize the information. We use things like a risk matrix or a risk assessment table, or with crowd management, we use the ice models. We use other different models to help us figure out different ways of looking at that data. And of course, those models aren't perfect tools. And that's what we decided to talk about today was models and their benefits, models and their shortcomings, and some stories that help show why those models are great tool for helping us figure out a sort of an overview but not necessarily math isn't the only thing that we need to look at to solve our problems
1: so the the context before danielle's you know very blustery day on saturday um in south carolina was we noticed that the triangle shirtwaist factory fire in new york city was having, you don't call it an anniversary, but you mark the date, it was like 114 years ago. Um, And for those who are not familiar, um, this was in New York City. It was a tenement building where young women, uh, mostly immigrants, were doing piecework with fabric. They were literally stitching together um, women's dresses. And that stuff is very flammable. And because it was turn of the century New York City, um, in a building occupied primarily by immigrant women. Um, there was no fire suppression equipment and because the owner was much more concerned with, uh, theft than he was with safety, he had the fire doors, the exit doors, locked. So when there was the inevitable fire, because all this fabric was highly flammable, um, when there was the inevitable fire, um, women who were trapped on the eighth floor basically had the choice of either jumping to their death or asphyxiating or burning to death on the floor where they were trapped. Um, You know, really terrible Hobson's choice. And what Danielle and I were talking about as we thought about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire was in sort of two parts. One. How does one prioritize risk? We spend a lot of time talking about how to mitigate risk. You know, we've talked about like the NIOSH hierarchy of controls. You know, with the nice inverted rainbow-colored triangle that starts with eliminate the risk, and at the very bottom is PPE because you can't actually do anything about the risk except, you know, wrap people in bubble wrap. Um, But we spend less time talking about how to kind of organize risk factors into more or less deserving of risk mitigation measures. Because risk mitigation measures are finite. Um, They are based on finite resources, finite amounts of money, finite amounts of human capital, um, finite amounts of all sorts of other resources. Danielle. And,
0: And they're imperfect like that's one of the things we can demonstrate with the Swiss cheese model is no one risk mitigation measure is going to solve all of your problems. So you need multiple ways to mitigate each risk, none of which are perfect, but hopefully provide you with enough protection between what the hazard is and the outcome that you are uh, either trying to achieve or avoid depending on which way you run your model.
1: <laughs> and the perfection argument, wound up being the other component of our conversation about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. It was a pretty free-ranging conversation because we started talking about models and the, the veneer of mathematical precision and certainty that arises with some models that, you know, basically if you can count to five and then multiply, you know, numbers as small as one times one, or as large as five times five, then you can prioritize the risk of any situation at all. And, you know, we we agree, Danielle and I, we agree that those such models are useful. They are useful because they get you to think, or at least to enumerate, what are the most foreseeable risks And, you know, even if you don't get them in the exact right order, if you get it sort of in the right ballpark, then you are more likely to mitigate risks that are more likely to happen and less likely to mitigate risks that are unlikely to happen. So that was where the conversation started, you know, this very broad conversation about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire and and then it evolved into
0: the philosophy much pre- of risk assessment. <laughs> yeah,
1: the philosophy of risk assessment and how much precision is there in these models? And uh, I will add my own personal note, and then you know, finally ask Janet Celery to pipe up because um, you know we bury Janet as we usually do in our introductions. <laughs> uh, I, I freely concede. I am an arts and humanities guy. I can do math. Um, My phone has a calculator, which I do use, but that's not instinctive to me. So for me, I trust mathematical models, but I very quickly start picking apart what purports to be objective reality because, well, Oftentimes, at least in the world of live events, it's not exactly garbage in, garbage out, but it is not as exact or objective a science as well as outsiders sometimes suggest that it is. Um, So my own bias is I find models useful as guidance. Um, I do not take them as Law a term that I take very seriously. and they're really suggestive of a direction, not necessarily an answer. So that's that's my own take on this. Um, Janet, from your standpoint, giving health and safety guidance in you know lots of different workplace contexts, what do you make of this?
2: So, um, as I listen to you and Danielle talk, I'm sort of reminded about the time before I had heard the word risk assessment. So that was a time when at the theater where I worked, we had had a critical injury. The woman who had been injured made a full recovery after four months in the hospital, returned to being an actor. But a number of us who were very much traumatized by that whole experience got together to try and figure out how can we do better? How can we figure out ways to protect people who are doing creative things. Uh, For us, it was theater, but it could be a whole variety of different things that involve events or sports or any of those those, uh, things that are very different from, say, a factory or construction. And it wasn't until a few years later that I attended an Opera America conference in which a man from the uh, Royal Court Opera started talking about risk assessment. And it was like, you know... The bells rang, the banners flew and <laughs> they there was an example of a risk assessment for a ballet and for an opera. And seeing that was such um, an eye-opening moment of going, hold on, there is a way to systematically look at this creative thing we do and figure it out in a in a better way. So um, and as I remember when I first met both, you, Steve, and Danielle, in at the Event Safety Summit in 2015, the conversation we had was about risk assessment, and it still is. So, what so I Jen, learned,
1: you're saying that Danielle and I are a broken record, are you?
2: Um, in the very best possible way. So, <laughs> that I had my first introduction to what a risk assessment was, and then when I began to apply it, the thing that I found most positive was not the fact that you could quantify the risk, but the fact that it gave you an outline, a tool to systematically look at all of the elements of either your venue, your production department, or your specific show, and even though you would try to apply numbers around likelihood and severity, I never really focused on those numbers especially other than I knew that they could be a helpful guide, so that when we get to that final number, the risk rating, if I have 35 risks identified for a theater or a show, it helps the ones that are most concerning rise to the top. So we can go, okay, we've got someone who's going to be um, working from a ladder at you know, 15 feet versus we have an actor who's using a stapler in a play. We will apply different levels of precaution and concern depending on that that level of risk. And uh, so I find what's useful about those models is the discussions that they cue. So you have the conversation and then you can flesh it out within your context. And I don't know that the numbers are particularly precise in terms of context, but I do really believe in the tool and, you know, the the work you put into using it can have really positive outcomes, not just in that you've identified the controls you want to take, but also the people participating in that conversation. You now are all on the same page. And there is now motivation to implement those controls, to make those improvements. So that's a, a bit of a roundabout way of saying, I think risk assessments have incredible value and we all benefit from learning how to do them.
0: I think it's just like any other kind of planning. It helps you sort of hone in. Because if you, if you try to plan for everything, which in theory we are, it's just overwhelming. It it leads you to be like, well, it'll be fine. I can't possibly do this. But if you have to like hone in on a specific thing, so you're gonna do a risk assessment for, if if we're gonna stick to the theater thing for now, uh, recognizing that not everyone is doing theater, uh, but if we're gonna do a risk assessment for one particular activist show where we have performer flying, you know, that gives us some very concrete things to assess. It also, helps us if, as we think through it to identify, because obviously we're gonna hone in on the flying part, but there's a bunch of other stuff that's gonna happen in that scene that we are now also going to identify because we're thinking about the, that scene. We're not thinking about the whole show. We're not talking about the whole venue. We're, we're focused down on that one thing. Um, but also as, as you were saying, Janet, this, this is like part of your planning process and it helps you plan, but just like anything else, the, what's going to save you isn't the plan, it's the fact that you did the planning, that you thought about it, you talked about it, and everybody has a general idea of what you hope would do, you would do in this particular situation, and when something is analogous to that situation, you can say, well, actor A didn't trip on a thing, but after actor B stumbled and banged their knee. So we already have a process for what to do with that. Again, we're using theater examples right now because we started there, (laughs) but
2: if I, if I could just join in with that, Danielle. So part of the process when you're talking about say performer flying is you may originally be thinking about, okay, um, engineering for what's overhead, equipment, the harnesses, all of the gear, the training of the crew. And as that conversation progresses, inevitably, you know, when I'm talking to a really smart group of people, they're going to say, okay, but what, if, what happens if we have a power failure? What if the person who is trained to be the crew person who's taking the lead on that? What if they get appendicitis? What's our backup going to be? What if we have to put an understudy in? So whereas we start with something that's fairly concrete, um, our process allows us to look more broadly at the issue and then plan for, okay, we need to train an alternate stage hand. We need to make sure we include the understudy for the role in the rehearsals and give them an opportunity. We need to fit them with a harness that's going to be their size. We need to have a process for power failure. So it it I think um when we give the process the time uh and and we really use it well, we will come up with a whole lot of things that that, you know, maybe they'll never happen but we have thought it through and we are ready if they do.
1: So Janet, I I love that thought. In my view, if you have a good plan, then it's not teaching you anything that you didn't already know. So you know that somebody who's flying needs to be properly harnessed and, you know, there needs to not be somebody standing directly underneath them at the time and blah, blah, blah. You're not teaching them anything new. Rather, you're bringing to their conscious self, these are the issues. So it's the process of thinking through risk is itself an essential part of the value of thinking through risk. And you know, I'm not going to make up anything novel here. Um, there's a whole book called The Checklist Manifesto that I know we've included in previous show notes by the author Atul Gawande. Um, but I remember sitting in the cockpit of a friend's airplane, because I have a friend who's done really well and had his own airplane, still does. And I know, because he's a smart and careful person, that he didn't want to run the airplane into the ground and you know, do terrible things to both him and me. So he had this laminated card with lots of words and colors on it. And I know, because he had told me in advance what was on this card, that he knew all the stuff that was on the card. But I also observed him go through each and every step. The whole point was not to teach him something new, because that would have been bad. <laughs> I would have been out. <laughs> <laughs> Rather-
0: does not teach you how to fly the plane.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Hopefully he had already covered that with someone smarter than me. (laughs) But the idea of having any of these risk assessments is to make you think through it again, because it's the one time that you don't think through each step that you'll miss something important. It's the process itself that adds so much value. And that's why, and here's really where I'm going with this, that's why When somebody says, you know, oh, Steve, you know, is there a template for how you assess risk? No, no, there is not. And it doesn't even have to be written. It's better if it is, but it doesn't have to be if it's only two people who are talking to each other about how to put on some small event of a small scale. They don't have to write it all down. They just have to have a conversation with each other. But the point is the process itself adds the value by making you think through, what are the risks?
2: Can, can I just leap from there, Steve, and just say, you know, I, I'm all for a conversation. I think that's fantastic. Um, I also, you know, as a former stage manager, have to say, I'm in favor of writing stuff down.
1: Oh, me and, too.
2: And, I, I didn't mean and, to
1: make light of that.
2: No, no, it, it, just that when you do have an opportunity to write it down, um, so I have every risk assessment I have ever written. And when I come to a situation that I go, huh, who did that? Oh, yeah, right. Six years ago in wherever, I saw an example of that. I, I can, I can leave, use, I have further jumping off points. Um, but the documentation piece is that then you have now created something that you can use in the future whether it's you or whether it is someone else who is coming into that role. Um, and both of you are really clear about this. We have been through a difficult time in history where labor shortages have caused an incredible amount of change in our venues. Not only people um, you know, either retiring or switching roles, but we are having a new workforce coming in who have done a couple of years of education, I, mostly online. So if you have documented some of what you do, the risk assessments, um, the even show running sheets that show what the steps are, that will take you further ahead in especially dealing with someone who is new to your venue. And of course, trying to do new shows or new things that your venue might not have done before. Um, something as an industry, we do extremely well, but let's let's keep track of it. Let's let's write it down.
1: So let, let's stay on that for just one second. I'm going to toss this to both of you guys. Um, so we're talking about risk assessments and different things that one can document in one way or another. And my position is it doesn't matter how you document it so much as that you do. So the question is, to what extent do you guys think that part of a risk assessment is doing some kind of after action reporting, some kind of assessment? How did we do? What do you think?
2: Okay, I'll jump on that one. I did a conference, a big conference. It had about 11 stages. Um, the load-in was about seven days. We did health and safety orientations for about 900 people. I know this because i personally did them every half hour for entire days (laughs) um it was great um so at the end of that project i did a post-event health and safety report where i went through all of my notes and said here's some areas where i think we need to improve here are the health and safety safety issues that were encountered on the show floor uh here's the reminders for these various different departments so I got asked to do this event again. And we've just started. And I can't tell you how useful that was because things get lost in the mist of time when you start the next project. So when I looked at my notes, which I had submitted to the person who employed me, um, I pull those out and that's the starting place for this next round. That's maybe a luxury. A lot of people are just going so quickly from event to event, they don't have times, but if it's
0: possible it's worth it. Danielle. So I'm, I'm going to uh, play the yes and card. Uh, I think that's fantastic. And I think for a lot of events, it's somewhere in the aspirational category because there isn't typically one person assigned to safety, quote unquote. So it may be your production manager or your technical director or stage hand number 17. But you know, if people are something that that for me has filled that same need if i'm able to jot down even just a couple sentences like somebody forgot to unlock door number 7 for this show it makes a difference when i pull out the the paperwork when we're repeating the show um that is not the same thing as a report it's purely internal and no one else sees it um but it's doing that same function in, in that it's helping improve. Um, and I would say the the bigger your event, the the more reasonable that is that you do a complete hot wash afterwards and document what you can. Um, you know, just at this, I live mostly in the world of smaller events, so uh, I think scalable is important, mm-hmm. and I think capturing things that almost went wrong or did go wrong is is very important. Um, I had another thought, and I think I've uh,
2: well, can stumbled I stumbled my way ask- around it. Yeah, so it and you know, I was in a, a a position of luxury, and I finished that job, I didn't have another job straight away. And so I had the time to go through and create that report. But there's lots of other ways that things are documented. So whether it's a daily show report, or um, a site report that events might have, you know, it may have all kinds of stuff, it might talk about deliveries being laid and Toilets being serviced. But if there is a way to capture some safety information there, whether or not you have an opportunity to compile it and really review it, at least it exists. And then in the next year, if someone's going, you know, what are the things we need to think about? Okay, maybe it's mud. And maybe it's, you know, um, wind and like there may be certain things that you can go. Oh, right. Okay. Um, So yeah, you know, Utopia is we have these beautiful reports.
0: Um, but I would love that. That would <laughs> be so fun. I'll come and work with you. You guys have no idea how, how <laughs> much Jen and I
1: both out. do that for a living. <laughs> I
0: know, I know. Uh, just I invite can. us down, we'll we'll yeah, help can, you. Come visit. Um uh, yeah, I, I would I would also think that a lot of times that information is being captured by different people. Yes. Uh, So sometimes it's going to be a crowd management. It may be uh, a parking thing. It may be weather related. It may be facility related. It may be production related. Um, And if there's a way to, in whatever your particular event type is, to think about how you can capture that information if you're doing something similar, again, I think that would be useful. Um, I would also say that memory is a very, very, um, leading <laughs> leading resource um, one of my least favorite things is when a, a, when a client comes in to me and says hey can we just do it the way we did it last time and I'm like I have done 300 events since you were here last <laughs> <You> know
2: <laughs> this is top for you but it's not top <laughs> you know, it's, for me the, the,
1: yeah. this is why witness eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable right? because people's lives move on very fast
0: very fast which you know uh, it's how we set up the tables in the lobby for your event versus all the other ones did not actually stick with me. <laughs> so, so documenting helps you on always including your, your safety and risk assessment.
1: So I, I want to acknowledge an elephant in the room because surely there is some podcast listener who has been listening for the last 10 minutes about, you know, documenting after action reports and they're thinking, hell no. I'm not documenting stuff that went sideways or that nearly went sideways. That's just pointing out our failures. No. And we know, because we work in this industry, we know that there are large institutions that institutionally take that position. So if you are in such an institution or think that way, find some in-house counsel to participate in your hot wash drafting process so that it's created with the benefit of counsel. And then at least arguably, and I'm not saying that I like this argument, but God knows people make it all the time, at least arguably, it's attorney-client privileged. So then you're not airing your dirty laundry in a way that can hurt you in subsequent litigation. You're just learning from your mistakes hopefully before they yield some tragedy that you know causes Danielle and I to say we need to have a podcast about this
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um it occurs to me that we're 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 using a lot of terms that we haven't really defined them or talked about the specifics and maybe you've been listening for a long time and we've gone through it before but i wanted to go back for a second and talk about uh, what a risk matrix is because we talked around it, but we didn't actually, we we're like, it's math and and risk. And then we left it. Yeah, um,
1: we, we should put a, an image or two in the show notes.
0: Yes. So if you Google risk matrix example, you will find these uh, typically rectangular uh, spreadsheet looking things. Uh, they tend to have a, uh, think uh, like a puzzle. It has a column that has how likely it is for something to happen, and then across the in the bar across the top, it's is it insignificant, minor, significant, major, or severe? And then yeah,
1: so it's the quantity of risk on one axis and the likelihood that that risk will occur on the other axis.
0: And then as you put those things in, uh, and assign them a number, so a rare event would be a one, and an insignificant event would be a one. So if something falls in that category, one times one is one. If something is almost certain to happen, it's a five. And if it's gonna be the worst thing ever, it's going to be a five. So that would be a 25. And most of these are also color-coded. So once you get up into the big numbers, they're like angry red. And your little ones and twos are a very uh, green, happy green color, so like a traffic light. Um, and the the rule of thumb is if you find things that are going to land in your red then you need to not do whatever that thing is because it's an unacceptable risk that you're doing things that land in the red so you need to mitigate that so that it gets out of that red category and again I'm sure that people will do things that land in red if you were running it through this handy little table but that's an example of of what that is. And as I said, you can Google it.
1: So, so Danielle, let's apply that to the analogy with which you started this podcast. You're, okay. you know, girls using outdoor tents as changing areas during a high wind day in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So the likelihood of high wind was apparently five. Almost, it
0: was, yeah, it was five.
1: Okay, because that was forecast and turns out to have been accurate, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yep. And the tents were not engineered, which means they had no wind rating. Um, So in the best case scenario, you picked up a phone, uh, but someone less proactive than you might have been just kind of winging it. Um, And that means if the tent had blown down with a bunch of girls from a competition changing clothes, the tent would have fallen on them. And, you know, whether it was canvas or metal tent poles, something bad would have resulted. So, is that
0: it's likely that, well, the winds were almost certain that the tent would fail was less so. Those tents have been known to withstand higher winds than we were expecting, but there was no guarantee that they would. We did talk with the tent company and we did add a bunch of ballast and tightened everything up but we still decided not to let people in it because when I run it through the risk assessment, I couldn't get it out of red, even with the other measures that we took. Um, And while, even if it came down, the likelihood of it being a severe injury was probably not high. Um, It was not anywhere close to insignificant or minor, uh, which is why we just made the decision that we were just not going, we, we were not going to accept the risk. It was not an acceptable risk. So, um, but you can see it, if the winds were different, if it was an engineer tent, you could run that through that matrix and get a different answer. And also, frankly, um, as one of the co-hosts of the event safety podcast, one would guess that I am more risk averse than somebody else would be. Uh, you know, it's, so who's doing your risk matrix or risk assessment makes a difference.
1: Podcast uh, listeners, Danielle is currently, as we speak, throwing firecrackers <laughs> on the floor of her office. <laughs> if you believe that, I'll tell you another one.
2: Um, Danielle, you said an interesting thing about getting something from red. And uh, so I'm just going to add a little wrinkle to this. So when I start, most of the risk assessments I do are what I would call pre-control risk assessment. So I'm looking at the hazard, I'm looking at the performer flying or the tent uh, in a way that I haven't yet considered any of the possible mitigations or controls that we could apply. However, so let's say we, we look at one of those things and we meet and we decide, here's all the things that we're going to do We can then do a second risk assessment, which is a post control. So after applying controls and then we should see it come down into a reasonable range. So maybe it comes down to orange, maybe it comes down to yellow, maybe it comes down to green. In any case, we have now made it to be an acceptable risk for us to go ahead. Uh, So it's, Oh, what we're we're not saying that you never do something that starts out in red. We're not right. saying you never do performer flying or you never have a tent. But what we are saying is you have to look at your very specific context and what you can apply to control that ha- that risk to determine whether that's acceptable for you in your own circumstances.
0: Do you uh Steve do you want to just Give us the quote one one more time. It's been a few pods since we've heard it. We, we're serving it to you on a plate. Here it is.
1: So our legal duty of care?
0: Our legal duty of care.
1: As opposed to the <laughs> Professor Kingsfield quote?
0: No, let's do the legal duty of care. <laughs> so
1: podcast listeners, you should be able to say this with me now, with feeling from the diaphragm. So on the count of three, we're going to articulate our legal duty of care, this time without the blue man story. But here goes, three, two, one. Everyone has a legal duty to behave, how? As a reasonable person under the same or similar circumstances. That is the duty (laughs) in every common law country on the face of planet Earth.
0: Thank you. Um, A couple other things before we finish up this pod. I wanted to go back to one of our stories about the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. Now, let me find the... Okay, so it was in March 25th in 1911. And in Washington Square in New York City so we told that story and a whole bunch of, of young people either died in the fire or from jumping or falling out of the windows. Well, one of the people that was in the vicinity was a person named Frances Perkins, and she was, uh, or would be shortly thereafter, uh, the Secretary of Labor for Frank Franklin Delano Roosevelt. and you guys should should look her up she's an amazing person and she is one of the first people that provided labor protections or advocated for labor protections in the US. Um, And this was in like, this was a long time ago, so the fact that a woman was in this position in the first place was was amazing. urged the government to spend $3.3 billion on schools, roads, housing, post offices, the Social Security Act, and the Fair Labor Standards Act. She basically went to the president and said, I think all these things are possible. And then she helped make them happen. So just like at the conclusion of of Steve and i's favorite book about uh, the, the fires at the station nightclub in Rhode Island, the point is the same one person can make a huge difference. And we are all empowered to do something because it may make the huge difference. Um, other things to note is there are other models, changing topics slightly, uh, there's the dime ice model, there's a the hierarchy of controls, there's the Swiss cheese model, we mentioned all of those, we'll try to include images of those in our show notes. Uh, We've talked about those before at length, so you can go back to previous pod or Google could be your friend. Before we leave, Janet, I wanted to give you opportunity to tell us about upcoming stuff from ESA Canada.
2: Wow, thank you, Danielle. So Event Safety Alliance Canada, has just announced that we will be holding our next conference in the fall. It's going to be the core conference will be October 23rd to 25th with uh, we're still working on some ideas for pre and post conference content, but our city will be Ottawa, Ontario. So it'll be beautiful in the autumn. And uh, we're already finding so, so many ideas for programming that we need to, uh, keep our spreadsheets up to date as we try to figure out how to fill all our slots, but we're really excited about that. Um, we're also very close to launching um, our member directories so that our members can begin to connect with each other. And we will also be launching a member forum so that people can post ideas ask for information, um, you know, just a way that people can share easily online uh, because, you know, this is a huge continent. People are distant and anything we can do to bring people closer together is is a huge benefit. And we're also doing a member meetup very similar to the ESAs, total copycat situation, um, but we're finding that that's actually, we've just done two and we're finding that that's a really fun way for people just to you know have a chance to connect support each other share information and i'm the luckiest person of all cuz i join ESA i join the canadian version and when i can i even join the global crowd management alliance so um all of these sort of are great resources especially if you find yourself trying to make change alone you can meet all these people who are digging in and and doing the same kinds of things so um so I'm I'm so happy that we have such a great relationship with the ESA and that we can all sort of, you know, keep working together, keep moving forward and making that difference one
0: person at a time. That's wonderful. Thank you, yeah. Janet. I love and, ESA Canada. <laughs>
1: and podcast listeners, you know, Janet Celery is kind of the embodiment of, you know, Danielle's story about Francis Perkins. The the one, the one place where I would differ with the way Danielle introduced Francis Perkins was she was very important. She was a progressive leader. She was, you know, kind of revolutionary in her time. She didn't do very much on her own. She was a fabulous organizer. And so Francis Perkins, like many people whose names we come to learn, did it with a lot of smart friends around her. And that's
0: I think maybe i'm implying she's a catalyst as opposed to she was a lone warrior
1: yeah (laughs) and she was she was a fabulous catalyst and so that's really what we're urging you to do um that's what every activist ultimately is they're a catalyst they you know they lead the charge but the point is there are other people charging with them and so i love janet the way you describe what you do and the different organizations with which you're involved, because you are simultaneously leading an event that will be in Ottawa in October. And you're also an active participant and contributor to other groups that are also engaged in the work of safe events. And that's why, Janet Sellery, we love to have you on the event (laughs) safety podcast, because you are such an integral part of so much that we do. Um, as podcast listeners are you. So,
0: so I appreciate it. Yeah. So, Thank you. So Steve, I'm now going to throw to you because ESA US also has a conference coming up. And what are those dates?
1: Um. Oh, gosh. Dates. That means I have to dig out my calendar. So let me filibuster and tell you what it is, and hopefully my calendar will come up. Uh, so we're talking about NAM. Uh, it's actually the NAM show. Um, oh. And it is um, April 12, 13, and 14. So as we are recording this on a Monday, uh, it's next week. Um, and it will be in fabulous Anaheim, California. We will presumably see the Big Mouse and various other friends. Um, and we will see lots of musical instruments and related toys. And um, I will be giving some remarks. And I believe I will not be the only one from the Event Safety Alliance. We'll have a presence there. So if you are in Southern California or just want to enjoy some nice spring weather, come join us at the NAM show, uh, April 12, 13, and 14 in Anaheim. And check out cool toys and come visit us um, giving our presentations.
0: Okay, and I will finish out the housekeeping, which at uh, next November, ESA will have our event safety summit in Houston, Texas, and it'll be November seven through nine. Uh, we also are finalizing pre-programming and uh, so we don't have that part ready to announce, but we will be delighted if you join us in Houston for the event safety summit.
1: Um, Save the Date is coming out any day now, probably will have dropped before before, this podcast.
0: Before the podcast does. Um, We would also love for you guys to participate and help with the ESTA technical standards program. Uh, A bunch of those are out for public review. So go ahead and give them a read and, and help us make those standards as good as they could possibly be. If you want to email us, our email is podcast at eventsafetyalliance.org. Our social media is also that same. And you can find us on social media or our website, which is also eventsafetyalliance.org. And I'm totally bearing the lead, but as I announced at USITT, we are now offering a free two-year student membership. So if you are a student in an academic institution, uh, trade schools included, you can have a free membership CSA with all the rights and, and privileges that come with that. So you can find that on our website as well. All right. Thank you again, Janet, Steve, always great to see you and stay safe, everybody.